Welcome to the Awesomers.com podcast. If you love to learn, and if you're motivated to expand your mind, and heck, if you desire to break through those traditional paradigms and find your own version of success, you are in the right place. Awesomers around the world are on a journey to improve their lives and the lives of those around them. We believe in paying it forward, and we fundamentally try to live up to the great Zig Ziglar quote, where he said, you can have everything in your life you want if you help enough other people get what they want. It doesn't matter where you came from, it only matters where you're going. My name is Steve Simonson, and I hope you will join me on this awesomer journey. If you're launching a new product manufactured in China, you will need professional, high-resolution, Amazon-ready photographs. Because Simo Global has a team of professionals in China, you will oftentimes receive your listings photographs before your product even leaves the country. This streamlined process will save you the time, money, and energy needed to concentrate on marketing and other creative content strategies before your item is in stock and ready for sale. Visit simoglobal.com to learn more, because a picture should be worth 1,000 keywords. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. This is episode three of the Awesomers Podcast. You can find show details and show notes by going to awesomers.com slash three. That's awesomers.com slash three to find the appropriate show links, notes, and details that we discuss throughout the, the program. Today, our special guest is Paul Raffleson, who is a tax attorney representing online merchants in tax and other business matters. And prior to advising online merchants, Paul spent over 12 years defending Fortune 100 companies in complex state tax litigation matters, spending most of his career as in-house counsel for the likes of Microsoft, Walmart, GE. That's General Electric, everybody. Paul's also an adjunct professor at the Pace Law School, where he teaches a state tax-based constitutional law course, and he is the acting executive director of a new trade association for online merchants called the Online Merchants Guild. And in my opinion, the Online Merchants Guild is a great new resource that will help each of us uh, find legal advocacy and legal strategies, as well as lobbying through the association and uh, where we can combine our efforts. This is, can work really, really well, and I'm super excited about it. Don't forget to subscribe and share this with a friend. It doesn't hurt to uh, leave a review as well. Uh, we really appreciate you guys sharing and getting the word out about the Awesomers podcast. Thank you very much. Welcome back, Awesomers. Uh, Steve Simons is coming to you again. And today I have a very special guest, Paul Raffleson, and he is a well-known expert in the, the field of uh, not particularly sales tax and tax law, but uh, has been a, a legal guy for many, many years. Welcome to the show, Paul. Hey, thanks so much. Really, really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Certainly my pleasure. And uh, Paul and I are, are meeting just after the Supreme Court has uh, uh, made a decision regarding the 1992 Quill versus North Dakota decision. So we're going to get into that a little bit. But Paul, kind of tell me about uh, your business today, what you're doing and, and where you live. Sure. So um, yeah, so let's start with the easy question. Where do I live? I live in the New York metro. I live in the beautiful Connecticut suburbs of New York City. Uh, and uh, very quaint little area. Um, I moved here from Arkansas, believe it or not, um, after living in Seattle as part of my tour of huge companies where I was in-house tax counsel at Microsoft in Seattle and Walmart. I was in Arkansas. And then this company called General Electric moved me to- A little to fella. Connecticut, yeah. And I don't know how much you know about GE and they're paying zero taxes, but they're sort of like the New York Yankees of tax. So when they want you to come, you kind of have to, I, I felt like I was being called up to the majors, you know? So I, I had to go. 
Uh, but I grew up, you know, not too far from here. I grew up in New Jersey, so I was kind of happy to be back in the area. Um, and then, you know, GE, uh, one of the last things I was doing at GE is helping them move to Boston. So kind of negotiating the same incentives that Amazon is negotiating now, and it's HQ2. Uh, GE was the original HQ2, I guess, in a way, um, and was a big deal up until the Amazon one. So I was working on that, but I myself chose I, not to go to Boston. I just like, I really like where I live, and I really like it here, and being in the New York metro, I stayed. So that's that. My business, well, I wear two hats. Um, the first hat I wear is, I, or the one hat I wear is, I, I'll get, go through the, this part first, is I volunteer as the Executive Director of Online Merchants Guild, or OMG. Uh, we are a trade association of online sellers, online merchants, but, you know, we have to convert you from saying sellers to merchants, but uh, who sell online. It can be Amazon, it can be eBay, Shopify. Uh, a lot of times our merchants are across multiple platforms. So, um, and what we do is we sort of, we represent your interests in, you know, shaping the future of e-commerce law and policy. So, you know, what, I, what I've been saying lately is if you, do you remember Mark Zuckerberg when he was on Capitol Hill? Did you ever watch? Did you oh, watch of him? course, yeah. I, especially the parody versions uh, where they lip synced him. But yeah, I saw it. Yeah. And you saw the questions that he was being asked by the Congress. I mean, really gave you a sense of confidence that these people really understand how things work uh, in, in digital anything, right? I mean, it's-, it's Yeah, just of- for the, the benefit of the audience, the, the questions were so, um, I, I would just say, low level, and they showed essentially the ignorance of the people asking the questions. The guy who's questioning uh, the, the witness, if you will, were asking questions like, you know, how are you going to make money? And he's like, we sell ads. Yeah, yeah, but it's free. How are you going to make money? And it's like the, the company's multi-billion dollar profits. They just showed absolute ignorance, in my opinion. And yeah. uh, it's just crazy. No, that's exactly right. And that's I, I'm starting to see that as an epidemic in everything e-commerce, even this court case, which we're going to talk about a little later. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the point. I mean, we have this online merchant skill to basically say, listen, people are going to lobby. People are going to push policies. They're going to push agendas. And they're going to push it upon people who have no idea. And so our organization needs to exist because we need to give online merchants a voice. We need to get behind candidates that actually understand who we are and can push um, for what, you know, push for the right laws that, you know, are appropriate for helping our industry grow. So that's kind of, you know, that's what we, we do. The other side of it is just like any trade association would do, um, we're ready to take legal action. I mean, we want to sue California. We want to sue Washington to assert your constitutional rights because you have constitutional rights. Um, even if you're in another country, you still have constitutional rights as applied to your sales in this country. And, uh, but that's expensive. And so when I have clients personally who are being chased down by California, one of the first things I tell them is, you know, this isn't one of those things where it's, you know, either the sales tax service provider or the lawyer, the problem with the lawyer is they're going to tell you not to use the sales tax service provider and shove you down the road of litigation. I mean, the first thing I tell my clients, you can't afford to litigate. I litigated these cases, uh, you know, Microsoft and all the, you know, it's a million dollar litigation budget sometimes. And, and, and you can't afford it, and, and nor should one seller really afford it, because the case, at, at, at the end of the day, it's the same case for everyone. So should be it should be litigated by an organization of common interest, um, and that's pretty normal. I mean, when the beverage companies, when, when Chicago passed the sugar tax uh, on sodas, all the beverage manufacturers got together and fought it. They took, you know, they hired a law firm and they fought it, and that's what we want to do. We want to hire the right law firm, work with the right lawyers, and get 
our voice heard in court, um, suing the states, seeking declaratory relief, which is like an injunction, basically saying stop pursuing the seller. So that's that's the online merchants guild. So we need people to join. Um, the membership sort of varies by your size. Uh, everything's recommended. So you know we have like there's one membership tier. I think they decided to put like twenty five thousand dollars. Nobody's actually done it. Um, and it's like if you're in the hundred million plus range of a seller. Um, but you know we're not going to sit here and audit your sales. You know it's all suggested. It's you know we, we kind of figure if you have that much at stake then you should be comfortable contributing this because you're going to gain so much from what we're trying to do for you. We're going to fight a lawsuit for you. That's going to save you a lot of money. But at the end of the day, if you give a hundred dollars and that's your membership level, that's fine. I mean, that's what you do. It's all suggested. And, you know, in addition to sort of fighting for tax policy, you know, IP policy, trade policy, all the things that we want to be there for to sort of shape government in the future of e-commerce <coughs> law, um, we also want to focus on benefits. You know, we, we're, we're thinking about, you know, having insurance products being offered to our members, things that they need, um, getting, you know, special discounts with vendors that are, you know, appropriate for our community, right? Like, you know, it's sort of like the AAA or, or, or ARP benefits, except instead of getting like 10% off of like, you know, a cellular phone, you're getting 10% off of something that actually is relevant to your, your business online. Um, and so that, that's kind of what our benefits focus is. And that's all building. We're still very, very much in our infancy. We, we did file an amicus brief in this case, uh, which you can find on the Supreme Court website uh, and, and read. I wrote it. Um, you know, I think uh, <laughs> we can talk about its influence later. And then from a personal side, I, I have a, yeah, I'm a law practice. I have a couple of lawyers that I work with and we focus on, obviously, tax is a big issue. People contact me all the time who are being, contacted by states, don't know what to do. People who are worried about, you know, are they, you know, what to do if a state contacts them or whether they should register for taxes in certain states. We have, a, I have an IP lawyer who's, you know, formerly senior IP counsel at Microsoft who helps tons of merchants with patents and uh, trade, uh, trademarks and, and patents as well. Um, and then I have, you know, mergers and acquisitions experts that came off of multi-billion dollar deals and certainly know how to make sure that you don't leave money on the table when negotiating the sale of Amazon business, which I see a lot. Maybe it's, you know, the difference between an asset sale and a stock sale. And, and, you know, the person who's driving the deal might tell you an asset sale is better for you, but depending on how you're structured, it might actually be a stock, you know, it might be better to do a stock sale, things like that. You know, we run that analysis for you. We have experts who do that for you. Um, if you pay tax, we help you, we can help you recover what you paid if it's, if it wasn't appropriate. So, you know, that's my law practice. So people can certainly reach out to me at paul at rafflesonlaw.com if they have that, those questions. Paul at onlinemerchantskill.org if they have those questions and certainly go to onlinemerchantskill.org to join and help us fight that fight. So, and just for uh, your benefit, uh, Paul, and, and the audience already knows, we're going to have these links in the show notes and make sure that we get uh, the uh, loose ends tied up there. Um, definitely the, the, the concept of the online merchant skills are uh, very, very important, especially when you consider the the, you know, we all kind of have this common problem, right? There are thousands of people being harassed, and, and I, I'm not putting words in Paul's mouth. Uh, everybody should be clear that my own opinions are my own opinions. Paul has got his own opinions. I'm disagreeing. I'm disagreeing anything you've said so far. But, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think California is operating in a, you know, full-scale harassment, almost mafia-like mode of Absolutely. scaring people with these letters, and it's, it's happening every day. Don't, uh, do you see that? Uh, happening continuously? Oh my God, people 
email me. I've had merchants threaten with jail time. Um, I don't know if you knew about the letter. You know, when California was first reaching out to people, I had written a letter to the state, to the governor. I saw that. Yes, it's a beautiful letter. I told members, I said, listen, guys, if you get the letter from California and you feel like you need to respond, send my letter. You know, it's, every auditor has to explain to you under the Taxpayer Bill of Rights the basis for the information that they need. They have to say this information is needed to do X, Y, Z. And so we asked them to explain why they needed it under the, you know, raising the point that we're not even really the retailer under California law. And I stand by all of that uh, still. Um, and, you know, the funny thing was we got this letter back. They sent it to all these, you know, all the merchants who sent my letter out and it was in Word. And uh, inadvertently, somebody from California forgot to scrub the document. And it turned out that Amazon data was inside of the Word document. And so... Basically, what it meant was that Amazon wrote this legal response that would eventually become a California legal ruling, and somebody from California copied it from an Amazon document and pasted it into the official California legal doc. And I can, you know, I can send it to you. It's hilarious. I mean, they sent it to. Wow, I definitely love to see it. So just to just to break it down for the audience, you're saying ultimately the California response was written by Amazon. Yes, it was. See, this is this is one of those things that we we just have to. This is why. you know, uh, the, the Online Merchants Guild is a, a great way to kind of have everybody show solidarity because whatever you can put in, and, and we should put in what we need to put in, because we've got to hold people accountable. Amazon, on one hand, is saying, come on to our marketplace, um, be responsible for taxes. By the way, you have no access to the customer. We don't know where your inventory is. You can't control anything, but you're responsible somehow. And we're going to keep that in place because we have more power than you do at the state level. And, uh, and to me, it's it's a giant uh, uh, surprise to see that that Amazon themselves is not only did they not file uh, and what you call I call it an amicus brief, but you had a different pronunciation. Amicus. I, I think it's because I was a Latin student. I don't know. Oh, okay. So e- either way, an uh, amicus brief or amicus brief is where you know friend of the court says, "Hey, this is the way we see it." And and Paul wrote a beautiful, beautiful brief. That, that anybody should read just to understand, you know, kind of our perspective that he puts in the legalese. Uh, I think even eBay wrote one to say, hey, this is this is not right what's happening. Amazon's silent on the issue. And it's a real yeah. shame that Amazon's helping write, you know, kind of legal responses for states to uh, yeah. come after guys. Mm. Especially when there's a direct conflict of interest, because obviously our point of view is that Amazon's on the hook, right? And that if you want your billion dollars of lost taxes, you better go after Amazon. And there's plenty of evidence to support that in California, as well as the law as written, as written right? Uh, especially when you consider an FBA transaction where, you know, you talk about the definition of a sale as transfer of title or possession or both, title, possession, or both. I mean, that's Amazon in an FBA context. Plus, a lot of states, California, Massachusetts come to mind, have this discretion clause that says, you know, if it makes more sense to have the sales tax administered this way, a certain way, then the commissioner or director of the state tax division has the discretion to do so. They could say, hey, listen, you know, California could say, hey, listen, Amazon, we want you to collect the sales tax now because it doesn't make sense for us to have to go after a million sellers if that's what they believe, right? And all of that exists, but Amazon's lobbying power, the 30,000 jobs they have in California, the the jobs they're throwing into Massachusetts. I mean, I know what Massachusetts is like when when you're throwing jobs. And I, like I said, I helped GE move to Boston. They're a lot nicer to you when you're bringing stuff into Boston. Uh, so, you know, it's all led to this, you know, sort of us versus them and them being the states and Amazon working together to, you know, because the states sign these deals as well. They sign deals saying, hey, we're not gonna, 
we're going to collect tax from Amazon, but your Amazon's going to collect tax, but but not on their marketplace. We're going to actually sign a document saying not on their marketplace and to make sure Amazon has a price advantage. I mean, it, it gets really conspiracy theory-ish after a while, but the sellers, the merchants I speak to get it because they're living it and they understand it. So to them, it doesn't sound conspiracy theory-ish, but to you know outsiders, it does sound a little weird because you're trying to explain the difference between, you know, what's a tax break? A tax break, you know, from a from a sales tax perspective, you know, is a lot different than a tax break from from a property tax. So, you know, if I put a warehouse in Worcester, Mass, right, where, you know, there's not so great areas of Worcester, although, you know, it's getting better, whatever. Um, if I put a warehouse in Worcester, Mass, and the state gives me a 20-year property tax abatement, I, I don't I don't disagree with that. I think that that's, you sure. know, it's a fair trade. I mean, you're trying to build up an area, you're trying to, 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 to bring, breathe some life into it. If you if you didn't do it, you wouldn't get the property tax anyway because the land isn't worth very much. So so why not? Um, but when you actually sign a document and you give somebody a sales tax competitive advantage, in other words, you're saying you don't have to collect sales tax. That's not a tax advantage. That's a price break. That's a price advantage. That's picking a winner, right? You're basically saying we're going to let you because you put jobs and you put warehouses in our state. We're going to let you sell cheaper than anybody else in our state can sell. And so. When when states complain about the level playing field and they complain that it's you know that they're sick and tired of losing money to 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 online retailers, but the number one source of the problem, they 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 enabled it. They 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 could have they could have not signed those those agreements. They could and those agreements are probably not even enforceable because they're probably illegal. But but the point is they they have the ability to either change the law as Washington Pennsylvania did to instantly level the playing field, or or to 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 just enforce the law like South Carolina is doing. But you know, these states that they didn't need the Supreme Court, Washington, Pennsylvania didn't need the Supreme Court to fix the problem. But yet that's what happened. Catalyst 88 was developed to help entrepreneurs achieve their short and long term goals in e-commerce markets by utilizing the power of shared entrepreneurial wisdom. Entrepreneurship is nothing if not lessons to be learned. Learn from others. Learn from us. I guarantee that we will learn from you. Visit Catalyst88.com because your success is our success. Hey, giddy up. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. Oh, well, sorry. it is. Boy, I, I just, I love every part of that rant, by the way, because, and, and I've, I've said as much, uh, although probably not as cohesively, but the, the reality from my perspective is that, you know, Washington and Pennsylvania with just a single stroke of a pen said, hey, this is the marketplace problem now. And and by the way, that makes all the sense in the world. Uh, you know, one of the one of the core questions before we dive into the Quill decision, one of the core questions I always have wondered is, besides the the obvious of the price advantage, um, and the fact that you know now, it, you know, it, it's been even before the the Quill overturned, there was a, a you know most of these states are chasing sellers. Amazon must know that the sellers are being harassed and harangued. Why do they continue with this policy? My my big picture reasoning was that it's they don't want the product liability they don't want the kind of the end consumer liability which would even be more than uh, sales tax potentially is is it your do you agree with that or do you think it's just the price advantage what, what's your thoughts yeah i mean i think the price advantage is is definitely key i mean i i, I know a lot of insiders at amazon there are a lot of ex-microsoft people at amazon right now and amazon has never been shy about you know their goal you know from last 10 years has always been to delay sales tax because, you know, Bezos himself has admitted the benefit of, you know, having tax-free shopping. Uh, that's, it's, it's a huge draw. And I, I always look to products like the MacBook. I don't know. MacBook is always my quintessential example because 
they're really expensive. And yeah. so, you know, I may not be tax motivated when buying, you know, uh, a pack of, of staples, not that I buy staples that often, but when I'm buying a MacBook, you know, I am thinking, do I go to B&H here in New York and, and buy a tax-free? Do I go to uh, Amazon and buy a tax-free? And you'll notice if you go on Amazon, you know, they're not an authorized Apple reseller. They're not going to sell you a MacBook directly. It's going to be through a third party and you're not going to pay sales tax, right? So when Jet.com was, became an Apple seller, it was funny to me and people were saying, well, why isn't Amazon? You're right. Why isn't Amazon? They're the world's largest retailer. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't they be an Apple seller? Because they don't want to be. It's because that's going to kill their brand. They want people to think, MacBook, let's go to Amazon and get it tax-free. So that advantage is really important to them, and it's important still. Um, you know, there's definitely a percentage of sales that they retain, you know, and because of that. It may not be as much as it used to be because with Prime, the loyalty is different, right? What we've noticed as sellers with Prime is that people now will actually pay more for products that have a Prime logo on it than they would if they just went down the street or even on Amazon if it was cheaper to buy it from a non-Prime person. It's it's a really odd phenomenon people are noticing that they can really hike up their prices uh, compared to what they buy things at you know Walmart and in the arbitrage space. And you know as long as there's a Prime logo on it, people will buy it. So so we're, we're seeing less of that price sensitivity, but it still exists today. And, and there's certainly a, a good percentage that does. And in retail, every percent is huge, right? I mean, the margins are so thin. So, you know, even if it's like 8%, which is what I think Jet.com reported roughly when they started collecting tax on everything, uh, that's still a substantial amount of lost sales to a company like Amazon. So they're not about to let go of that competitive advantage. As far as the product liability thing, it's a really timely point. Um, I think that... Uh, on the one hand, I would say there's no escaping product liability in those situations because we have this sort of concept of strict liability. Uh, but that said, Amazon actually won a case in Tennessee where the where the court said that Amazon was just like Craigslist, basically. Um, I'm sure that case won't you know survive an appeal if, if it ever gets that far, um, as the judge's reasoning was completely garbage. Um, but it, you know, it's it's funny you mention it because that's you know to me like the fact that Amazon can escape strict liability is hilarious. And the reason why they were going after Amazon was because the seller disappeared. It was probably a seller from China, I think. And so they had no other recourse but to get to recover from Amazon. Um, but, you know, in the world of tax, you know, our definitions are very specific. And, and so definitions that make you a retailer for tax purposes may not make you a retailer for other purposes uh, under the law for, you know, such as in the context of who's the seller for, for, uh, you know, product liability purposes, uniform commercial code, it's all going to be different. Tax has its own sort of ecosystem of definitions. Like, you know, a perfect example is like, what's a person, you know, under the internal revenue code, a corporation is a person, right? I mean, so, you know, it doesn't really seem to make sense, but for tax purposes, it's a person. Um, that's how we, how we view it. So um, interesting point. And, and one last thing before, uh, just something to circle back on about Washington. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have been asked, have been noticing this, and I, I've said it before, but people don't, don't seem to realize it. Even though Washington State is collecting your sales tax, they still assert that you, they still believe you owe a B&O tax, which is the business and occupation tax. It's their sort of quasi-income tax because it's illegal, to, it's unconstitutional to have an income tax in Washington right now. Um, uh, isn't it unconstitutional? I can't remember. I know they yeah. tried. I know Bill Gates Sr. tried to try to impose one, but never happened. Um, so anyway, uh, the B&O tax is a small percentage of your sales. I don't remember if it's like 0.02% or something like that um, uh, on your retail sales, because they consider you a retailer, um, that you have to pay, not collect, to the state of Washington. And in order to do that, 
you have to fill out what is essentially the Washington state sales tax return as you would have to fill out normally if you were collecting Washington state sales tax. And then what you're supposed to do is apply a credit, say basically take a credit on the form for all the uh, taxes Amazon collected um, for the sales tax piece, but then still have to pay the B&O piece. So in terms of, you know, tax liability, yes, Washington has taken steps to kind of prevent you from having this accumulated tax liability every month that they believe you owe. I don't believe you owe. They do. Um, but at the same time, the burden is still there. They haven't alleviated you of the burden, which is really what we care about when we get into the case. It is the burden. Yeah. For, for everybody listening, this is, this is actually an important point to make. So a, a lot of people, especially the people who don't know what they're talking about, they will say, hey, Steve, uh, you, you are harping on this uh, sales tax thing. And, and really, it's just you trying not to pay tax. And it's like, no, that's not it. Uh, it really, I don't pay the tax anyway. As a merchant, I collect the tax and remit the tax. That would be a simple thing um, and, and relatively closed-ended. But as Paul alluded to, it's the, it's the other things, the income tax, the B&O tax. Uh, cities will start sending out, in my opinion, registration notices and go, hey, you yeah. sold something in Seattle and it's a $50 a year registration. Uh, welcome to the party. And in some cases, there's even little um, revenue tax overrides and counties have you know, asset taxes and so on and so forth. This is, you know, it, it will be death by a thousand cuts for regulatory paperwork, not just the cost of it all. Absolutely. The cost, I mean, you're right. The registration fees, you know, something that I don't stress enough, you know, we're in California, just to register your LLC, I think it's, uh, is it 800 a year? $800 or something, maybe more now. Oh. 300, same for thing. You have to file for your LLC. You have to file personal income tax return now in all these states. It adds up, but then yeah, the registration fees that you have to pay the annual uh, to the state secretary of state, you know, all that stuff you have to do, it adds up so that, yeah, I mean, you can be creeping into six figures easily based on where Amazon is now and as they expand out their network even more as states assert crazy nexus theories, which we'll get into later. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a crazy sense of, uh, you know, it's a crazy situation. I agree, no, no seller. And this is why I had a problem with eBay's position. eBay had a petition. Um, and I was very cautious to say from an OMG perspective, we don't support this, um, is that we do support tax. That's a misconception. We do support, we don't benefit individually from the no tax situation. Amazon benefits collectively, right? I mean, people seem to think we benefit, but if you look to the person who benefits the most, it's Amazon. Um, and so we we support tax. We just support it. We just want it to be easy. Make it easy. Either have Amazon collect it or leverage the technology that makes it so easy and painless that, you know, it's not a problem. Like if you want to have an income tax burden, then you know maybe you maybe you have a gross receipts tax on uh, on Amazon sellers, and then those who then and give us the option to file our own income tax in, instead. So that way we can either live with the gross receipts tax based on you know data pulled out of an Amazon API API, or we file an income tax return and and, and substitute it for that. I mean, there, there's ways the states could do this to make it easy. They're just totally you know again we've got the Zuckerberg level people in charge. Uh, and, and they're also, it's impossible for them to cooperate with each other. And I'll give you a quick example of the Zuckerberg level as it applies to our community. Uh, Richard Cram is the genius who sort of facilitated the amnesty program that was launched back in August, where states falsely accused everybody of tax evasion, but then, you know, thankfully they forgave us. Uh, yeah, good news. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Robin Hood. Yeah, exactly. But they didn't tell you about all the back taxes you'd still owe with respect to income and all the other problems you'd have. But anyway, so when I, I reached out to Richard um, very shortly after the thing was launched, you know, sort of a little bit naive at the time, just thinking, okay, this is a case of states really not understanding how Amazon works. 
you know, I come from, I used to be a seller. Um, coincidentally, my wife used to be in seller operations many years ago. So I had like this double whammy of actually knowing a lot about what it's like to be an Amazon seller from the inside and from the outside. Um, and so, you know, cause she was at Amazon and that's how I, I, I got involved is through one of her colleagues, former colleagues. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, um, when I reached out to Richard and I, I started explaining things to him, I said, Richard, what about commingling? I said, those who commingle their inventory. I said, it's almost like the second I send my inventory out to UPS or whomever, I cease ownership at that point because that very physical product, that serial number, if you will, no longer is guaranteed to go to the person who clicks on my price, right? That's not, it's, it could come from a completely different place. So really I don't own anything tangible at that moment. I have like an IOU from Amazon, like some sort of intangible right that if somebody clicks on my price, Amazon will meet its obligation and give them the thing that I gave them. But I don't actually, I'm not storing anything in any one place. And you know what he said to me? Tell me. What's, what's commingling? Oh, yes. And that's who's making this decision. You know, that's who's driving e-commerce, right? I mean, so that's, you know, again, it's just another example of, you know, having the wrong people in charge. And it's like, we have this government of people that have no idea uh, how the modern economy works and they're just going to screw it up. Pardon my language. No, no, that's uh, uh, frankly, uh, there could be much stronger language deployed here. Uh, it, it is, it, it is such a multitude of levels of kind of, you know, on the, the plus side or the nice side, unawareness, uh, or down to pure ignorance, and the the issue for us as as online sellers or merchants, uh, the OMG online merchants guild uh, types of guys, we have to really think about, you know, how do you how do we deal with this level of ignorance, right? Because we can't you can't fight city hall and win certainly not on your own, and uh, to to get big things overturned, it really does make more sense to kind of join together and uh, you know take it to the man so to speak. Absolutely. And I, I, and I, you know, I think we're going to make a bigger push to get people now that we know the outcome of this Wayfair case. Now that we know what needs to happen. Um, we're going to make a big push because the reality is, is, is like you said, it, nobody can do it by themselves. Um, people need to join. People really need to, to get involved now. It's, it's, it's sort of now or never time if, if, if they want to have a voice. I don't think people realize like, you know, there's what, 2 million sellers online at least. Now I don't realistically think we're going to get anywhere close to 2 million sellers, but you know, even if we captured, you know, I don't know, 50,000 or even 20,000, God knows, you know, who knows, we'd be pretty powerful. But, you know, it's the numbers that make us powerful. It's the number of sellers out there that makes us powerful. If you think about one of the most powerful lobbies in the United States is the American Association of Retired People or ARP, uh, is it, it's just a sheer numbers thing. There's just a lot of older people in the United States who qualify to be members and they pay their dues and they get their discounts and and, and that gives the ARP a strong voice in what's important to them. And so there's no reason we as sellers can't have a strong voice and can't actually not only influence legislation, but we can influence Amazon too. I mean, there, there's leverage points to be had if we're a strong, if we have strong political influence, then we can start pushing back on things that Amazon does that makes it harder for us. Because to your point earlier, yes, Amazon knows that there's sellers that are struggling because of this. But there's a lot of other things that are happening that are, are causing Amazon sellers to struggle, right? I mean, the, the, the new FBA fees structure is killing a lot of people. Um, you know, the IP, the constant like, you know, fake law firm from China sends a, sends a false infringement claim to Amazon. Amazon shuts you down. You're down for two weeks. You're losing tons of money. 
Um, meanwhile, had Amazon just checked the register.com, you know, address, realized that this was a, you know, a law firm that was just established yesterday, <laughs> probably not legitimate, uh, but it happens all the time. Yeah. And, you know, fake review gate, fake reviews. I mean, it's like, I understand that there's some of it's real, but there's some that people are just getting caught up in it. It's like, you know, it's a big fishing expedition for Amazon in some cases, and they just don't know what's going on. And then to get your issue resolved, it's taking so long because they're just overwhelmed. So, you know, there, there's things that Amazon does that we definitely have the ability to push back on, but only as a powerful organization. But the only way we become that is if people join. Well, this is, uh, you know, this is a, a foundational element, and we'll talk uh, maybe offline about uh, the Empower E-Commerce uh, Cooperative, a nonprofit member-owned cooperative that that has kind of worked on the the benefit side of that equation more than the uh, the legal and and the lobbying side. But the reality is these these concepts are all about you know people being better together. And I was at Amazon, uh, I don't know, a year or two ago, and we we had this discussion about we understand there's a bunch of these bad fish that are in the waters. Um, these guys who, you know, the sellers who are making fake reviews and the sellers who are making fake complaints and, and, you know, manipulating, you know, other guys there's a lot of those bad guys in the ecosystem. And, you know, on one hand, we want Amazon to take those guys out of the, the, the ocean, um, but not take us out with them. And I kept saying, you know, we're the dolphins quit taking the dolphins out with the nets. Uh, you're killing us. And, um, it, it is a, it's a continuous process. I'll, while I respect the complexity of it and understand that, you know, sometimes it's probably hard to, to tell the difference between good and bad. Some of their algorithmic methods of finding out who's manipulating reviews, I think are creating a massive amount of false positives. Absolutely. Pe- people who I know for a fact have never engaged in any kind of tomfoolery or skullduggery and they're being treated just like they are one of the worst guys on the planet. Absolutely. And, and I just, you know, the, at the end of the day, my, my, you know, maybe it's uh, wishful thinking, but I, I, I want to believe that, that, you know, Amazon wants what's best for the sellers and, and that they really want the, the uh, merchants at the end of the day to, to feel like they're, they're some level of customer instead of the, uh, the outcast that we are today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is kind of people are very pessimistic right now about their Amazon businesses. They feel as if, you know, almost like, you know, is Amazon trying to thin the herd a little bit now by kind of like making sure, you know, are they trying to clear out their warehouses? Are they just full of too much stuff? I mean, we don't know what's going on in the big picture, but it doesn't just, there's a lot of pessimism as I've noticed in the marketplace and a lot of people I speak to, you know, beyond just the tax issue. And it seems like tax is just another one of those factors that just kind of is causing people to think twice about becoming an Amazon business, which is a shame because, you know, listen, Amazon at the end of the day, what, Prime is, and I have plenty of reservations about whether you know it's appropriate for Amazon to control the whole Prime delivery system because of how it was built. But I'll save that for another time. But at the end of the day, what it is is a portal to the global economy. It's uh, it's it's instant scale, right? I mean, if in 1992 when the original Quill decision happened, right, you wanted to sell a product and you know sell internationally and have a global you know product set sold, uh, you'd have to have like so much money, right? I mean. Tens of millions. I don't know how much it would cost in 1992, but you have to set up, uh, you know, warehouses in all these countries. And all that. Yeah, every piece of the puzzle had to be solved by you individually, right? Yeah, and if you wanted to sell products nationally, or you could go to Walmart and be in the pitch room, which I used to walk by all the time. It's very, very odd to see watch people pitch. Um, you know, and hope to God Walmart would do that and then squeeze you out of your profits. You know, it's not unlike the way some people are being treated now. But the point is, is that with Amazon and Prime, you know, you know, eBay really started it, right? I mean, you now have the ability to sell on a national and international platform. 
But what Amazon did was they introduced the logistics. And so now you have the ability to sell and scale at the same level, in fact, better than Walmart, better than Target, right? Because you have the best logistics system in the world uh, at your disposal uh, to get your product out there. Um, and so that's really cool. So I always say like, Amazon created this portal to the global economy where, you know, for just a few bucks, you can go from being like, you know, to, to selling in competition with those, you know, giant big box retailers. It's amazing. That's revolutionary. It truly is. And this, you know, as much as we want to, to improve things and, and critique things, the reality is, you know, it's still a wonderful opportunity. And, you know, that, you know, some guy and his cat can be running a global business. Uh, it, it's It's got more complex and we're going to dive now into uh, why uh, it's getting more complex, but it's still an opportunity. There's a lot of uh, very positive things about e-commerce in general and, and certainly the Amazon piece. Yeah, I mean, if you have a good product these days, if you're, you know, or if you're really good at what you do, uh, you know, people still succeed. I think, um, you know, I think there's some older business models that worked back in the day and people made a lot of money, but they were just kind of like, you know, not working today. But I think, you know, those who are innovative, those who have great ideas um, and, and really kind of understand there's still plenty of success to be had. I mean, if you design, you know, I, I, the majority of your listeners, are they... Um, would you put them in any one bucket in terms of the type of seller? Are they wholesale? Are they private label? Are they, um, you know, are they kind of a mix? There, uh, there's definitely a mix, uh, but most of what I advocate and what I believe in is building your own brand, which, uh, you know, right. most people would refer to as private label or whatever. But uh, I, I like to see people build brands, which builds equity, which means that you have something at the end of the day that's worth something. Good. I didn't want to come in and say, like, you know, start saying, you know, you know, other things were the way to go and, and then find out that your whole, you know, audience is pure, you know, like dropship and be like, uh, so no, that's good because I agree with you. Brand building is the most profitable way, the way to be profitable because it's still your own brand. Like you've created something and if it's unique, if it's novel, if it's something that people want, sometimes it doesn't even have to be that unique. Sometimes it's just like, you know, one change to a product that, you know, somebody else made, you know, or, or somebody else sourced from a, from a different factory, you know, making that one change. Maybe it's making the cable longer. I don't know. I've heard stories, but uh, we're just focusing on a very niche product. Like, uh, you know, I don't know. A better um, spatula. Better spatula. Exactly. <laughs> right. Like your own better spatula. I always tell people like people who are in industry is like, if you're in, you know, sales of uh, plumbing supplies and fixtures, I said, I bet you could come up with some cool stuff sell it on Amazon because you know your trade so well that you could probably mimic what the good things that you know your suppliers do and and remove the bad and sell it cheaper and I bet you make a lot of money because I, I see I think that's always key to look to kind of where did you come from what's your what, what do you know and that that's a, a pressing example because I, I talked to guys in that space the plumbing uh, and construction space saying exactly the same thing which is you know you know bring a cool idea forward and, and make it uh, b2c uh, friendly so all right let's let's back up for a minute and uh, frame up this uh, problem with the uh, quill decision and so we'll, we'll first talk maybe about um, you know what was the original quill um, thought you could probably summarize it pretty easily and then what did the court just uh, undo basically can you uh, help us with that Sure. So Quill is a continuation of a case called Bellis Hess, which was a 1967 case and was the origination of the concept that you need that a business must have a physical presence in the state in order for the state to subject it to tax is the expression we use technically of collecting sales tax. But to be subject to the tax jurisdiction, if you will, of a state, you had to have a physical presence of some kind in that state. And 
that case went up in 1992 uh, in Quill because we had another case called Complete Auto Transit versus Brady, which basically came up with this much more sort of gray conceptual concept of you know whether state tax is constitutional, um, but no bright line rules such as physical presence. And the question in Quill was, does the complete auto gray area rule overrule the Quill, uh, the Bellis Hess physical presence bright line test? And you know the court in in Quill was probably leaning towards yes, it does. But it was actually um, the sort of the states that kind of shot themselves in the foot in that case by sort of indicating that, you know, they may try to apply this court's uh, decision retroactively and that, you know, they just kind of sense the, the fear that, you know, the, these um, the states, if left to their own devices, could really put do a lot of harm to, which was the catalog industry. Quill, Quill was an office supply company, now part of Staples. Uh, and so they were worried about the catalog industry, which is kind of funny because of the way this case went out. You, you, you're worried about a catalog industry, but not two million people selling online. Um, but yeah, so that was the thing. And so when this, you know, when the states got a whiff of what, when this court got a whiff of what the states kind of were trying to do, or you know, what could possibly be done, um, I think they they felt you know better air on the side of caution and just create the physical presence bright line rule. But you know, make it clear to Congress that when they make a decision under what we call the Dormant Commerce Clause, which is basically saying when Congress hasn't addressed a, a situation, we basically need to come in and basically act as if we're Congress and and sort of resolve it, you know, in a manner that we think would be consistent with Congress Congress's intent, but could always be override over. Can always Congress could always override it with their, by actually addressing it directly. So we call that sort of the, the Dormant Commerce Clause because you're sort of, you know, creating you know law out of nothing, sort of. Basically, I don't want to get into the whole negative preemption thing because that's just going to drive people nuts. But you're basically kind of, you know, invoking the Commerce Clause uh, at the bench as opposed to in Congress because, you know, the, the issue is important. It needs to be addressed. Um, the court, uh, so the court, so the court passes the Bright Line Rule of physical presence in 1992. And lo and behold, 20 years later, uh, sorry, more, less than that, you know, a few years later, we start to see the Internet and e-commerce and you know, throughout the last, yeah, 20 years or so, states have really been struggling with taxing e-commerce because of this physical presence rule, which they deem to be archaic and old and in, inappropriate in the modern era. And so what they started to do was, you know, to start to tap away at it. Um, we saw it mostly in income tax, actually. Um, the first the first uh, chip at, at physical presence was in a case in 1992 called Jeffrey. It was actually a South Carolina case. Uh, where, you know, there was an intangible company that didn't actually have any physical presence in the state of South Carolina called Jeffrey, which represents Jeffrey the giraffe from Toys R Us. And they would charge a, a royalty, a fee for using the giraffe to the local store. So basically, if the South Carolina store made $100, they would still have to pay $50 to the giraffe company in Delaware. And what that meant was the giraffe company would now have $50 of income in Delaware where they don't tax that type of income. And the South Carolina company now, instead of having $100 of income, only has $50 of income. So it's all like gaming within the company and sort of taking advantage of the way states' income tax structures were back then. Um, and South Carolina said, no, wait a minute. Um, Jeffrey has an economic nexus in the state of South Carolina because they're driving income related to you know, the activity. And, it's, it, it, and so they kind of coined this economic nexus concept back in 1992. And you know, they, they won. I mean, the court wasn't going to touch that. And then... We started to see more and more of these economic nexus cases, you know, Capital One, 
uh, uh, MBNA, where the credit card debt basically and the presence of the cards created Nexus. And, and eventually we saw the New York case against Amazon, which was what we call the click through or affiliate Nexus cases, right? Where, you know, now um, the states were saying, you know, and, and this was really the first crack at a sales tax case because those were all income taxes, but we, we've been sort of seeing uh, physical presence get withered away. Um, and so that's when New York kind of went to say, well, there's you have these affiliates operating in the state of New York. They're referring sales back to Amazon and get collecting commission. They're like your affiliates. We have case law at the Supreme Court that says, you know, when you have affiliates operating in the state, then they're basically can create nexus, what we call affiliate nexus. And so New York won this groundbreaking case that basically started the road, you know, paved the way for states to sort of impose their tax laws against Amazon without sort of the traditional sense of physical presence that we thought about, that we, we know. Um, and so, um, and, and the other thing about withering away at physical presence for those who just really want to know this is probably more detailed than you need. Um, the one thing about that always was interesting about the income tax cases is that the state sort of just took this idea that um, something that was said in the Quill case that basically said physical presence was only a requirement for in sales tax, not income tax. So that's why they started with the income tax cases and then kind of moved towards the sales tax cases. So that that's sort of the history of how we got there. But now, um, still feeling like for whatever reason, uh, they decided, you know, rather than continuing down the road of affiliate nexus uh, with Wayfair, which they totally could have done and probably would have won because the court never, ever took or overturned any attempt by state to use this economic nexus theory. Um, they chose to sort of pass these, you know, unconstitutional laws such as the 200 transaction $100,000 of sales rules uh, in, in the hope in, in order to, to drive a challenge to the court and that was because god I'm sorry the history of this is just so no, much no I'm no sorry this is uh, important for people to understand context in my opinion yeah this is a 2015 case called uh, direct marketing the brawl and in that case uh, it had to do with uh, Colorado uh, disclosure tax disclosure and whether that case could be brought into federal court because typically federal courts are not allowed to hear tax cases, but um, it really wasn't about a tax or the, the administration of a tax, it was about notice. Uh, and so the court, um, so that was the issue there. And, and the court saw it that way that it wasn't, it wasn't really about the, uh, the notice, uh, it wasn't a, a tax. Yeah. Uh, but in that decision, what was, what was important was uh, you have Justice Kennedy who delivered the opinion in this case uh, inviting the states to bring a case against Quill. And that DMA case, before it was at the Supreme Court, was actually uh, heard by Gorsuch, who eventually became the judge in the Supreme Court and, and also sided with, with the majority in this case. Uh, but Kennedy was sort of said in his concurring opinion in DMA that, hey, we need somebody to bring a case. This, this physical presence rule is just stupid and needs to go. Uh, those are my words, not his. Of course, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And it's is it considered... Uh, a normal thing for these justices to kind of telegraph their opinions. They, there's a couple written statements and, and uh, you know, written opinions that, that were very blatant saying, hey, you know, th and maybe in today's modern world, it doesn't apply anymore. Empowering. The name says it all. Connecting e-commerce entrepreneurs with great people, ideas, systems, and the services needed to stay business dynamic and to grow. Empowery is a network, a cooperative venture of tools and resources to make you better at what you do, because we love what you do. We are you. Visit Empowery.com to learn more. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast.
Yeah, I mean, I, I've never, you know, it, it's the nature of the commerce, it's nature of the dormant commerce clause. I mean, it's basically the Supreme Court trying to figure out the right answer in, in the absence of congressional legislation. So they have more leeway to be mm. critical of those types of things. I mean, they, you know, there's a concept of stare decisis, but there's also the concept of, listen, we're just trying to come up with an answer in lieu of, you know, this really should be Congress's problem, not our problem. And, but because it's our problem, we're just trying to come up with the right answer. The answer we chose, we now see as being pretty dumb in the modern economy. And I think the court in this case, you know, and, and we'll get into a little bit more, was pissed off at Wayfair. I think, you know, I think there was probably an intent for what physical presence was meant to do, but it was never meant for to, to shelter a giant company like Wayfair from collecting sales tax, especially with their massive virtual presence and all that. So I think from the court's perspective, this case is really about preventing companies like Wayfair from an overstock from sort of using this as a shelter to gain a price advantage and and but limited in many ways to that you know situation and still being open to other scenarios where you know it still could be unconstitutional um but they just what they basically did in, is remove physical presence from the analysis uh you know that south dakota law they blessed it but it still remanded back to the lower courts and you know technically could be deemed unconstitutional by the lower courts if, if they wanted to but you know the courts pretty much blessed it so it's it's probably going to be fine. I doubt it'll even be heard. I doubt it'll even be remanded. I mean, I'm, I'm sure South uh, Wayfair will drop the case at this point. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's it's. I've never seen the court be that blunt, um, and I was a little disappointed too in the way that, that this came out. Especially Ginsburg, I thought was really really problematic. I was really disappointed. But yeah. I knew no argument that that's how it was going to go. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, the the tea leaves were definitely reading towards. Uh, you know the. It's one thing to say, hey, the multi-billion dollar companies are using this to their advantage. And it's a whole nother thing to go, there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of uh, merchants uh, you know, across the U.S. and really across the world who will be impacted by these things. And in my, in my reading of the, the case, uh, South Dakota was quite disingenuous with their idea that, hey, it's 19 bucks a month and you're done. Yeah, right. Uh, it, it's like, no, not done, not 19 bucks a month. This is going to be a massive, massive compliance regulatory burden. The money is irrelevant, uh, you know, from the standpoint of collecting and remitting tax. It's not even our money as merchants anyway. It's the consumer's right. money. So we don't – that's not the issue. But, uh, yeah, so we're – so if you summarize the decision now, basically – or I'll try it and then you agree with me or clarify. But uh, they basically said physical presence is no longer the, the core question. Um, as something as simple uh, as 200 sales in a state, 200 sales, you can sell, you know, a $1 item 200 times and you'll be now uh, re required to deal with taxes or $100,000, whichever uh, comes first. Is that basically how you saw it? Um, I mean, I think they, they, they sort of ran the scenario where they said $100,000 of sales or 200 transactions seems like you must have substantial you know, activity in the state to, to generate that. I don't, again, they don't really understand what it's like to be on Amazon, but at the same time, there's a lot about Amazon that's different than this case, right? Um, you know, and I thought what was telling to me, and I, and I think, you know, the court still left the door open. I mean, they, they didn't say it was the definite, you know, this is definitely okay. They said it was definitely okay in the context of large companies and, and maybe okay with small businesses, but to challenge this law to say it's too burdensome as a small business, they said the door is still open to do that. This is not what they were asked to address. 
they were very, very narrow in what they decided and basically just saying, we're removing physical presence from the equation. You can still bring a burden case before us and say, listen, I'm a small business. I'm a kitchen table enterprise here. And now I've got to hire Deloitte and, and Touche to, to do my taxes on my kitchen table because I have nowhere else to put them. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, really, where is a small business? I, I would say, where is a small business going to get an accountant that, you know, how is your Washington state local accountant going to understand the intricacies of Mississippi laws applied to an income tax uh, LLC that's a pass-through or the difference, difference between, you know, their, their uh, income tax, that portion of their tax return on income and their franchise tax, which is like a net worth tax. There's like different scenarios. And I, I don't know, how is your Washington state accountant going to know that? Um, so who do you go to? But I thought this was interesting in page 23 when the court said that, um, you know, they, they, they said they had this quantity of business referring to the $100,000 200 transaction rule could not have occurred unless the seller availed itself of substantial privilege of carrying business in South Dakota. And respondents are large national companies that undoubtedly maintain an extensive virtual presence. And I thought that was really key that they added that sentence there. They didn't have to. But I think that that's, you know, that was seriously like the point. It was like, this is ridiculous. Stop hiding behind this. Um, and, and it makes sense because if you listen to the oral argument, they could care less about Wayfair. They were always concerned about the small business. And I think what they said is, well, listen, the case that was brought, and this was my argument, is that this was really never about Wayfair. The case that was brought before us technically is Wayfair. And we think the idea of Wayfair hiding behind physical presence is really ridiculous. We need to get rid of this ridiculous rule so Wayfair can't just hide behind physical presence and, no can other, and neither can other big companies. But if a small business is truly being burdened you know, by these laws, then by all means, bring that case before the courts. And if it makes it to the Supreme Court, they'll, you know, maybe they'll take it. And, and if they believe that there's something to, to adjust there. But I think part of it was they just removed it. Let's see what happens. Maybe that will inspire Congress to take action because obviously putting it there didn't inspire them. So maybe this is another way to get Congress to take action, to clarify. Not that that gives me any comfort. Um, <laughs> well, even as the Quill decision came down, as I recall, the court said unequivocally, hey, this shouldn't be our problem. This should be Congress's problem. You can fix all of this immediately, pass some laws that deal with this, and, uh, and it's just sat there the entire absolutely. time. I mean, that's exactly right. And that's what the Dormant Commerce Clause is. It's like, we're going to speak, but please, Congress, come in and address this. You know, this is kind of really not our place. Uh, to do this because we're not supposed to legislate, you know, we're not. Yeah, we're but now to... we've got the guys questioning Zuckerberg to try to sort this out and explaining <laughs> to uh, commingling FBA and, uh, you know, uh, it seems I mean, like an uphill battle. Lobbies convincing these people that they're merely this passive flea market online and that you guys are all individual retailers. I mean, so, you know, that's why OMG needs to exist. It needs to be uh, free of Amazon, free of eBay. We can't rely on the same e-commerce coalition that it would include an Amazon or include a, an eBay. And that's why our membership requirements really exclude those types of companies. I and mean, we're very specific on what you have to be in order to be a member. You can sell on eBay, you can sell on Shopify, you can sell on anything you want online. Um, you know, who knows, one day you could be maybe an Airbnb person, you know, I don't know. But the point is you can't be the big guy because that's, that's problematic. We can't have those types of people driving policy because they're, we have direct conflict of interest. Yeah. So we need to, have our own voice and our own opinion and, and be able to get that voice heard and, and uh, make sure people want to hear what we say. And that, that only happens if people adopt LMG and, and you know, become members and, and really, you know, get into it. So what, what does this mean then for um, merchants out there that it's like, okay, now uh, physical presence is not the deal. So does that mean I need to 
register in 45 states or, you know, should I just capitulate when uh, California sends me the, the 10th nasty gram that says they're taking my kids and my pets and uh, <laughs> forth? Uh, what, what, you know, what does this mean? Scott. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny because uh, somebody told me, they said Avalard, you know, I knew Avalard gone public a couple weeks ago and that their stock went up 15% after this ruling. And I said to myself, why didn't I invest in them? Yeah, boy, well, that was the one we could have saw coming. <laughs> yeah, I, I forgot. I didn't even think about that. I mean, it's ridiculous because, yeah, I mean, these companies are going to go on and scare everybody and say, yeah, you need to register now, get get compliant with 50 states. None of these, like the two biggies, like Taxstar and Avalar, don't do income tax compliance. And oftentimes, the people who talk to me say they didn't even get warned about it. I know Taxstar has had articles on income tax in the past, but they don't really warn the people when they get kind of sucked into it that that's coming. And so people get surprised by all the sort of subsequent pain that comes with registering in, in these states. So, you know, I'm, I'm against registering. I, I just think that you're, you know, you're, you're opening yourself up to more pain that, you know, most sellers I talk to can't afford it anyway. Like they realize like, I can't afford all of this compliance. I can't afford to hire my own tax guy, you know, full time. Um, and again, it's, you know, there's still a lot of questions that have to be answered. And that's why we need to bring our case in court, you know, the case that says this is a burden on small businesses. This shouldn't be the burden on kitchen table enterprises, right? We have a solution. We have a solution. We have Amazon collecting the tax is a much more reasonable uh, solution to this than making each individual small business a marketplace merchant collect the tax. So the burden doesn't make sense in this case because as applied to us, there's a much more reasonable solution that would place no burden on us. So why not, you know, and Amazon can charge for it. They already do, uh, you know, and, and they can be compensated for, for the effort that they have to go to do it for us. But it's just not really fair that we have to be put in a situation. But then we also have to address the income tax in that same case and say, okay, well, Amazon can do our sales tax, but they can't do our income tax. So what are we going to do about that? And do the states need to get together and just come up with an easy solution for people who sell via marketplaces? They, something needs to be done. Um, you know, it's not our fault the states are dysfunctional and can't work together and, and form a common solution. We shouldn't be forced to suffer. You know, as I said in the brief, it's like, you know, the states always kind of want, you know, for the states, it's like, we're never going to adapt to innovation. We expect innovation to sort of adapt to us. In other words, you absorb us as a burden. We don't, we don't try to kind of, you know, help further innovation by sort of adapting to the modern times. Uh, I mean, the states have done nothing since Quill, if you think about it, really. They've, all, that, all that stuff the court said was all crap to me because the states have really done nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, the state's definition of modernization is the fact that you can now file on a website as opposed to filling out a paper return. But I mean, that's like, that's, that's like, you know, scanning the Encyclopedia Britannica, the paper books, putting them on an Adobe web thing and posting the web and saying, I've, elect you know, I've digitized the encyclopedia. It's such bullshit, pardon my language. No, but, no, it's quite appropriate. Uh, yeah. the, the reality is like, um, you know, they have done almost nothing. Uh, in fact, maybe less than nothing. Uh, the states don't have any intent, in my opinion, I, I don't see any intent of them trying to work together to solve the problem in a in a proactive way. And this goes back to the fact that there's so many hands in the cookie jar, right? Because Absolutely. it's not just the states, right? There's every little city's now going to say, oh, now how do I get my little piece of that? Uh, you know, I've got a, the Tempe, Arizona says, hey, I, I need a registration fee. You sold a, a spatula in my city, so I'm going to need a $50 a year registration. The, the, the consequences are potentially unending. So uh, there's just a lot to be done. So when, yeah. so when you look at this, um, do you say, you know, so first of all, let's maybe we should just clarify that the, the question of FBA creating Nexus is still separate from this in, in yeah. many ways. Oh, yeah, no, that's actually, no, that's a point that I always make. I thank you. I kind of 
got sidetracked and forgot to say that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny how many FBA people come up to me and say, you know, do I need to register now? It's like, well, I, you're not in any different situation. You're still in dire straits. You were in dire straits before this case because the states, in their opinion, thought you had a physical presence. So even if the court went the other way and said physical presence was no longer a factor, the states were still going to consider you to have already had physical presence prior to that and you were already on the hook, you're already in the state. So for that, for the FBA sellers, I mean, nothing's really changed other than, you know, the urgency that was there before has just become more urgent because now we know that we need to take action because the states are going to be empowered to act and they're going to be more and more aggressive. And so we need to, we need to get people onto OMG. We need to, uh, you know, start the process of fighting, starting your constitutional rights. At the same time, you need to start protecting yourself and buying yourself time and making sure you don't uh, screw up something where you end up having to pay a bunch of tax, excuse me, yeah, uh, a bunch of tax uh, in order to, you know, and the only way you get it back is to pay it and then you have to sue for a refund and you're already in a bad spot. Um, so, you know, those, you have to be mindful of that if you're being if you're being pursued by a state that, that there are, you know, ways to protect yourself, but you may not necessarily just want to start cooperating, you know, directly either. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 time to take action if you're an FBA, because now we, we know now we know what's what needs to be done. If you're not FBA, welcome to the party, as you said before. Uh, you know, you're now in a situation where a lot of us are, except, uh, you know, non-FBA people and non, you know, eBay uh, people and Etsy may not have the income tax problem because they do have this law called Public Law 86272, which says uh, you you don't have to file income tax. You know, the state can't make you pay your file income tax uh, returns in that state if your only connection to the state you know, is uh, the sale of tangible personal property and you're selling it, but the order, orders are referred to home office out of state and then shipped in state. So somewhere in that sort of threshold of what you can do to avoid an income tax, I don't see FBA sellers as crossing that threshold. I mean, non-FBA, sorry, non-FBA sellers as crossing that threshold. So, you know, you still may have a very expensive sales tax and tax registration compliance burden. You know, maybe it's 20, 30, 40, $50,000, who the hell knows? Uh, what it's going to ultimately cost you when you factor in all the cities and states and towns and parishes. Um, but um, you may not have that income tax burden unless the states start to get creative with you. But whereas the FBA sellers, because in the eyes of the states, you have a physical presence, they're going to say you're storing inventory in their state and therefore you're subject to income tax. And and of course, this this entire argument it needs to be addressed at some point. Uh, maybe this is something that the uh, online merchants guild will look at, but you know, there's, there's many reasons in my opinion that FBA still is not physical presence. It, oh, it wasn't before. Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, so that, but this is, this is my interpretation. Again, uh, you know, Paul has his own opinions and uh, expertise, but, and actually he said as much, the States are now going to be empowered, right? They're now are going to go, Hey, now that the gloves are off, we can do anything we want and nobody can stop us. And I don't think that they will read the narrow, you know, kind of this is about the big companies picture. And so this is inevitable that there will be lots of state action against lots of people. And, you know, we, we need to kind of gird ourselves for battle and, and uh, set strategies and then ultimately figure out what what kind of case we can get in front of them to fight this thing, because uh, mm -hmm. California they're, I, I think they're going to turn up the heat, not turn it down. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the people who are sending you threatening letters, I mean, they're not even qualified in what they do. I mean, one this one person who's been harassing a lot of people, uh, you know, she just keeps turning it up and scaring you more and more. 
she was like a travel agent six months ago. I mean, you find her LinkedIn profile and her Facebook profile, like they, they don't know tax background. I mean, I've spoken to a few of those people and they're just like robots. I mean, they, they, they have a mission. They're told what they're supposed to do and they're following orders. They're not doing, you know, they don't think, they don't even understand the concept that there's legal question and legal opinion and that there's, that, that this is not, you know, black and white. They see it as pure black and white and they think you're all tax evaders. I mean, it's just, it's insane. And so they scare the crap out of people and get them to do things that they probably shouldn't be doing. Um, yeah, like that's that form, you know, in sending it back, you know, there's a lot of problems with that. I mean, I don't know a lawyer who in, in state and local tax that knows what they're doing that would ever actually fill out that form. I mean, we might respond to it, but we're not going to fill it out and answer those questions in that way. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. Well, uh, this is the, I mean, their intent is just to get you into the system. It doesn't even matter what you put on the form. They're going to decide that, you know, yeah. you what you say, that they've already concluded you have Nexus. The form is just to kind of like make, let you make admissions. to. This yeah, form. this is exactly right. You're going to, in fact, I, I know one of my very uh, good friends and colleagues, um, you know, he's been harassed by them. He's been on the phone with them. And, you know, at one point he's like, fine, I'm going to send you what you want. And then, you know, he sees these questions. He's like, well, the, you know, this, the answer to this is no. And they're like, but they're whatever. I'm not sure I get the details right, but their system wouldn't take the actual correct answer. Yeah. And so he's like, well, what should I put here? Because the, you know, it's not taking the correct answer. And it's like, well, just put in yes, you know, mm -hmm. essentially admitting things that aren't true. And you know, this, this is these people advising him to lie on a, on a government forum. And it's just, it's just a crazy blind leading the blind scenario. I, I dislike it immensely. I coach a lot of people through these and, and I think they're very surprised to kind of when we run through their business and we run through their analysis and decide what we want to do. I think they're very surprised like to kind of find out, you know, every, everyone's situation is a little different, but you know, it, it's, it's not the approach that, you know, we're not, the one thing I'll say is there's no brownie points here. Okay. There's no, you don't get extra credit for cooperation. Okay. Some, this is not, you know, law and order where, you know, you can, where they come up to you and say, yeah, you know what, you can go get a lawyer or we can work together on this. And, you know, they're going to screw you no matter what. I mean, this is, this is a, it doesn't matter if you're cooperative. Some of my clients have been super cooperative. In fact, have helped the states understand the business to the point where they further, you know, support their position that, that, that this is a legitimate, what they're doing. And it's like, and, and then they go even harder on that person. It's like, it's hilarious. I'm, I'm doing that in Washington right now. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's such a bad situation. And uh, yeah, people, yeah, it's, uh, um, it's why, you know, it's like, you can defend yourself, you can go against California, um, face the, the back taxes, or you can support the OMG and, you know, help us reach our goal. It's not going to be cheap. It's going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars to hire the kind of litigators we need. You know, it doesn't go to me. It's like to hire lawyers and litigators to file these types of cases. These are complex cases. Um, and we need to raise that kind of money to, to bring that case. But you know what, if you're facing that legal bill on your own, wouldn't you much rather share it with like tens of thousands of other people? So, I mean, we should be joining, we should be encouraging other people to join. Um, I, I love the fact that you support us. I wish other, um, people who, who are, you know, thought leaders and, and whatnot in, in the Amazon community would support us. So many, so many feel threatened by us. It's very, it's very annoying. You know, so many people we reach out to just seem like, like seem to treat us like we're some threat to their, to their business when we're actually trying to save you guys. We're trying to save, you know, it, it's like, you know, do you want to be a MySpace guru in a year when nobody can afford to do what you're doing? Or do you want to continue to, to, to be able to offer your services and help people succeed? I mean, our job, I can't tell your, your listeners how to succeed on Amazon. I don't, I don't know how to tell you to succeed. 
Um, but what, that's not what we're here to do. We're just here to kind of keep that window of opportunity open for everybody to succeed, right? Like we, that's, that's what we do. Um, and so that when you learn what you need to learn um, and you can apply it, that you actually can do it. So um, uh, yeah, you know, people were, were, were understanding as you, you are and some of the other people I've spoken to. Well, in, in some ways, this is just uh, the maturity of the market. So, you know, it, really, if we, if we boil the fat off the bone, the Amazon marketplace really picked up steam in the last, you know, say four to six years um, in terms of, you know, bringing in so many sellers and having so many people uh, starting to achieve, um, you know, real meaningful uh, numbers. And that's a very nascent, uh, you know, part of the, the e-commerce business. And so the, the idea of, you know, the, the empowering cooperative, you know, people are, still are confused. Well, how, how can members own the cooperative and what does that mean? And, and you know, people are confused. Well, why would you need a trade association to, you know, help lobby and help fight legal battles? Uh, it, it's a fairly unique thing. Whereas other industries, uh, it's it's a known quantity. You talk about AARP, but any major trade business I've ever been in construction, they have lobbying organizations, master builders association. association. You know, the association of cheese manufacturers. Exactly. And there's so many ridiculous ones that there's no reason why two million people with such a common interest and in, 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 don't have a trade. It's, it's actually shocking to me. That it is. Yeah, that. it is it, quite right. Uh, well, but again, this is from the, from kind of, older experienced guys looking at a nascent business going, you guys are missing one of the basic elements. And, you know, I'm here to share, you know, with all the awesomers out there and, and Paul's kind enough to come on and share uh, as well to say, Hey, you know, this is, this is a solvable problem. There's going to be pain along the way, no doubt about that. But, you know, by supporting, you know, OMG um, and if, there's also a, a marketing company called OMG. So I'll probably usually say online merchant skilled. Yeah, we're the <laughs> What's that? Or .org, online merchants org, right? Yeah. Okay, good. Online merchants org. Again, we'll have this stuff in the show notes as well as how to be able to uh, contact Paul directly. But these things are things that, you know, when you're being threatened by a state, you know, you should take action on some, some level and at least know what the options are and then make an educated choice from there. Uh, any, any final words of wisdom, Paul? Because I know we ran a little long, but it's such an important and complex topic. You know, we probably haven't given enough uh, energy just yet. No, I mean, it's, 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 it's a hard thing. I mean, I, I struggle. I, I do prefer the, 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 the opportunities I can, where I can speak on it because it's a little bit easier to get it all out because, you know, there's just so many moving parts in this, in, in this stuff. I mean, you know, um, a lot of times, you know, where I struggle with this is, you know, as a corporate tax lawyer, when, I, when we talk at tax issues with big companies, we're talking to tax professionals, right? It's one tax professional. So there's already a sort of, common ground that we have so that I don't have to explain everything from scratch. Whereas in this case, I have to explain things from scratch, but I actually have to do more because I have to help people unlearn what they've been taught by tax jars and Avalara and that this physical presence equals nexus and therefore you're screwed mindset because that's not true. And I, and I always start off by saying, well, you know, prior to today, uh, prior to yesterday that, you know, did you know that there's two types of nexus, that there's nexus under the due process clause and there's nexus under the commerce clause. And we still don't know if you have nexus under the Commerce Clause because of FBA. I would suggest you don't. You didn't direct your activity towards the state, blah, 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 blah. But it's like they don't even know that. And that's sometimes the wake-up call to say, guys, stop stop relying on what you think you know and just, you know, let's start from scratch here. And it's, it's hard to do that. So I always tend to be 
over the, you know, just more than maybe it seems is necessary. Maybe it's too much because I, I just don't know where the listeners are coming from. But, you know, if you're, you know, same last words is going to be if you're, you know, if you're dealing with a state right now, definitely get help. Um, you know, get help from people who tell you that you have a chance. Obviously, I, I do not people who just say you're doomed and you have to pay um, and try to get you on a payment plan to earn their money and, and, and leave. Um, realize that when a state tells you they want you to come in to comply, uh, especially California, they oftentimes leave out the fact that they're going to come after you for back taxes. If you ask them, they usually do tell you, um, but a lot of people don't. And then they get the letter saying, OK, where were your back taxes for 10 years? Um, so just realize that that's on the table, too. Um, if you have any questions, obviously reach out to me, but most importantly, join the guild and, and beyond just joining the guild. I mean, we need help. I mean, we're a young organization. We just launched with this Wayfair brief uh, in March. It was sort of a rushed launch because we needed to have, be up and running for that. Um, but help us spread the gospel. Um, if you have friends who are selling, get them on board. Tell them, tell them to tell their friends. I mean, that's, let's just get this thing up and running and, and, and get people to adopt it. Because if we don't, I mean, if we fail in our mission, then I just don't know, you know, what happens next to this community. I mean, there's nobody nobody looking out for them. So, you know, help us spread the word. And if there's anything you can help us with, like if you have, I don't know, time to help us with our social media marketing, we love we love volunteers. And, uh, but anything anyone can do, please reach out to me, paul at onlinemerchantschool.org and, you know, happy to, love to have you on board in some capacity. Yeah, and, and just uh, uh, excellent um, you know, advice and, and certainly sage wisdom. These are very important topics. Uh, I haven't said it clear enough here, but I, I want to just reinforce this. You know, Paul has been for as long as I've been able to track him, a year, a year and a half, I, I don't know, but a long time he has been an advocate for the entrepreneur. He's been an advocate for the little guy without uh, you know, coming to each guy and going, hey, uh, I'm not going to speak up in, you know, I'm not going to speak the truth unless I have some uh, skin in the game. He's doing a lot of this stuff on a volunteer basis. Now, that, that's not sustainable. We got to have a way, uh, whether it's the Online Merchants Guild or using Paul's uh, firm directly to, to be able to take action and, and keep this kind of, you know, uh, brain plugged into the system. And so I really uh, appreciate everything you've done for entrepreneurs up until now. And I know that there will be a lot of support coming. And uh, there, there's no doubt that there's ways that we can kind of uh, increase this uh, lobbying and, and uh, lawsuit uh, part of the equation. I, I have some ideas, and we'll talk about those offline. But very good job, and thank you for such uh, amazing work on behalf of entrepreneurs around the world. You bet. Thank you so much. I, I, love, these, I love these opportunities. It's just always great to meet new people and, and, and get involved in new groups and, and just talk about what's important. And, uh, no, I appreciate it. Thank you for thinking of me and for all your kind words. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Awesomers, we'll be back uh, right after this. Hey, Amazon Marketplace professionals. This is Parsimony ERP, and we get one question over and over. Can you please tell me exactly what Parsimony does? Well, we'll try, but this is only a 30-second spot, so we're going to have to hurry. Connect to your Seller Central account and pull all the new orders. Enter the orders with all customer data. Enter all of the Amazon fees and charges. Store them at the item level. Generate profit and loss reports at the SKU level. Automatically generate income statements. Handle multiple companies. Handle multiple brands. Handle multiple currencies. Facilitate budgets and forecasts. Store all customer interactions in a sophisticated CRM system. Manage your supply chain. Budget and task management. Maintain an audit log. Hey, you get it. That's parsimony, P-A-R-S-I-M-O-N-Y.com, parsimony.com. We've got that. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. 
Well, I sure enjoyed uh, our conversation with Paul today. I hope you did as well. Uh, this is, again, the Awesomers podcast number three. You can go to awesomers.com slash three to see the show notes and uh, related details that we may have talked about. Uh, and I just it is just so striking to me that, you know, the states are acting in such a malicious, harassing, and from our perspective, uh, meaning myself and others here at Awesomers, not speaking for Paul, but they're acting in an illegal way. They are going out of their way to oppress small businesses, particularly those that are not even in their own state. And they're doing so in a way that anybody else who acted like this would go absolutely to jail. They are doing everything possible they can do to harass, oppress, threaten, and otherwise push e-commerce guys into either the shadows or into um, you know, some sort of fake compliance that is not even sustainable. Uh, or even pushing them out of business. So let's not stand for this. Let's do something about it. And uh, one of the ways you can do that is to go ahead and share this podcast. And don't forget to uh, you know leave a review and maybe uh, you know share this with a friend. It doesn't hurt. Sharing is caring. Well, we've done it again, everybody. We have another episode of the Awesomers Podcast ready for the world. Thank you for joining us, and we hope that you've enjoyed our program today. Now's a good time to take a moment to subscribe, like, and share this podcast. Heck, you could even leave a, a review if you wanted. Awesomers around you will appreciate your help. It's only with your participation and sharing that we'll be able to achieve our goals. Our success is literally in your hands. Thank you again for joining us. We are at your service. Find out more about me, Steve Simonson, our guest, team, and all the other Awesomers involved at awesomers.com. Thank you again.